Our lesson of the day comes from James chapter 2. I will begin reading in verse 1. Here again, the Word of God. My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings and fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say to him, you sit here in a good place, and say to the poor man, you stand there or sit here at my footstool, have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brethren, has not God chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? Do they not blaspheme that noble name by which you are called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever shall keep the whole law and stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth and the wisdom that you give to us, Father. We know that all the answers to life's great problems and questions are found here in your scripture. Father, we pray that you would speak to us through your word today, that we might trust you more fully, that we might live more faithfully. This we pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. James is very blunt. My brothers, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. He says a little further down in this text that if you do practice partiality, you have sinned. You have violated the law, the law to love your neighbor. If we trust in Jesus, James tells us, we cannot discriminate in a certain kind of way. We cannot practice partiality. We cannot play favorites. We cannot be prejudiced. Now clearly, this was not just a hypothetical problem in the early church. And frankly, it's not just a hypothetical problem today. James gives us an example. James illustrates the kind of thing he's talking about. And I want to stress, this is not the only kind of way favoritism can happen. It's just an illustration uh, to make the point. James has a reason for choosing it. Uh, but you need to keep that in mind. It's not the only way that partiality can become an issue in the church. But James gives this example. He talks about a rich man who comes into a meeting and a poor man who comes into a meeting of the church as well. And in this case, the rich man is shown favoritism. He is given a seat of honor. Uh, the poor man is given a poor seat. You could say a place on the, on the floor or perhaps in the corner uh, where he's made to stand. The rich man's clothes, his fine clothing, his gold ring show he is high status. He has power and influence. And so perhaps the thinking is, if we want his favor, 
We better show Him favor. If we want to be favored by Him, we better favor Him. And so by rolling out the red carpet, uh, it's really a way of trying to get something from Him. You don't want to fall on His bad side, for sure, because He has power. But maybe you can get on His good side. And maybe by showing Him favors, you can get favors in return. Meanwhile, the poor man has nothing to offer. He's got shabby clothes. He probably smells. Probably hasn't bathed in a while. He's harder to be around. You see this person as needy and as difficult. And so he is shunned. He's not shown any respect because he does not seem to have anything to offer. And so he's relegated to the corner. Nobody cares about the poor man. That's James' illustration. And James says it is wrong to treat these two men differently in a church meeting. It is wrong to to, to treat the rich man as having greater worth just because he has greater wealth. That's using a worldly scale of values. And James tells us it is inconsistent with faith in Jesus Christ. We're going to hold to the faith of our glorious Lord, Jesus Christ. We cannot act this way. Jesus himself certainly didn't treat the poor poorly. Just the opposite, in fact. We find if we look at the ministry of Jesus in the Gospels, how does Jesus treat the poor? He's constantly reaching out to those who are marginalized. He's reaching out to the weak, the powerless, the underprivileged. Jesus did not push the poor out to the edges of his kingdom. Rather, he was willing to bring them in and even give them places of honor in his kingdom. Jesus did not play favorites the way the world does. He did not value people based on those things the world values in people. But you know, it's interesting, the early church really struggled to imitate Jesus in this, and I think it's been a struggle for the church ever since. Uh, The early church clearly had a problem with favoritism. James brings it up here. Of all the things James could have addressed, he brings up the sin of favoritism. But there are other ways that we see favoritism being a problem in the early church. James reminds us here that that favoritism is a violation of the law, uh, that to to show favoritism or to uh, practice partiality uh, is to violate the law. And James also makes it clear that the law is a unity. We might think that we encounter God's law as a series of commandments, discrete commandments like the Ten Commandments or the multitude of other commandments you can find in Scripture. But James reminds us in this context that the law is a unity. The law is one because the lawgiver is one. And so to stumble and break the law at any point is to break the whole law. If you break one law, you have broken the totality of the law. It's like a window. The law can be compared to a window here. And if a window gets broken, say up in the corner, the window is still broken. You can't look and say, you can't say, well, look at how much of the window is not broken. It's still a broken window. And so it is with God's law, as James says, to stumble at even one point is to become a lawbreaker. This means you can't pick and choose with God's law. Selective obedience is still disobedience. James lists different commands. And he says, well, if you keep this one, break this one, you're still a lawbreaker. That's how it works. To break the law at one point is to break the whole. So this was a problem in the early church, and these Christians needed to deal with it. They needed to understand it. But you know, there are other examples of favoritism in the early church besides just the illustration that James gives here. Consider Acts chapter 6. 
in Acts chapter 6. So this is the, early, the church is still in Jerusalem. This is very early on. And in that context, a complaint arises in the church in Jerusalem. The Hellenists, that is the Greek speakers, complained that the Hebrews were being favored. So you got Hellenists, those, these are Greek-speaking Jews, it seems, and you've got the Hebrews, these are Hebrew-speaking Jews, or Aramaic-speaking Jews. And it seems that the Hellenist widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And so there was a kind of favoritism being shown to those who were more closely tied to Judaism, perhaps, Jewish culture, uh, to Jerusalem. The Hebrew widows were being favored over the Hellenist widows in the uh, daily distribution. And the church dealt with that favoritism in Acts chapter 6 by selecting the first deacons, several of whom were Hellenists themselves, who could ensure a more equitable distribution of resources among the widows. So there's this problem of favoritism, and the church deals with it. Here's another example also from the book of Acts. The first church council is called in Acts 15 to deal with an issue of racial partiality. An under, a misunderstanding of uh, what it means to be a Jew, what it means to be a Gentile, and how each of them become Christian. The question really in Acts 15, the question that confronted the church is, could Gentiles become church members? Could Gentiles become covenant members without first becoming Jews? That is, could they be saved without circumcision? That was the sign of God's covenant to Abraham, after all. Shouldn't they have to receive that sign if they're going to become children of Abraham through their faith in Jesus? Well, the council reasons this out from uh, the Old Testament and from their experience of uh, the work of the Holy Spirit. And the conclusion of the council is that the church is equally open to all. Gentiles who trust in Christ are just as welcome as Jews who trust in Christ. In fact, it points to what Paul says in Galatians 3.28, that in Christ Jesus there is neither Jew nor Gentile. There is no distinction to be made. God shows no racial partiality in His kingdom, in His covenant, in His church. The church had to learn that lesson. The church had to learn and confess what Peter learned a few chapters earlier in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 10, after being sent to minister to a Gentile family, Peter confesses, I now understand God shows no partiality, but accepts from every nation those who do what is right and fear Him. And that became the rule of the church's ministry. God accepts anyone, whether they be Jew or Gentile, whatever nation they might come from, whatever ethnicity or cultural background they might come from. God accepts any who put their trust in Him, who do what is right, who fear Him. But you know, the church has not always followed through on that truth. Peter himself struggled to continue living by that truth. It continued to be a struggle for him. And sometimes the church has struggled with this in mighty ways. In fact, sometimes the church has simply denied it. Uh, we know the history of the church in our own nation has a history of terrible racial favoritism, uh, a history of terrible racial prejudice, particularly against blacks. There are churches in America that for a long time, blacks were not allowed to join. They were not allowed to become members. Or if they did, if they were allowed to join, they were treated as second-class members of the church, so to speak. They couldn't sit in the better seats in the sanctuary. Uh, you can read accounts of this where blacks would be relegated to the far back or to the balcony. They had to take the poor seats. Almost exactly like what, uh, what James illustrates here, uh, only with black and white instead of rich and poor. 
They wouldn't be considered for leadership positions. There was no chance of that. They were routinely mistreated. There's no way that anybody can really doubt or deny those things happened. And it was shameful. It was sinful. That kind of racism is a form of partiality. It's a, uh, it's a form of favoritism. It's the very thing here that James flatly condemns. It's the kind of thing James says. Contradicts faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Any form of partiality that treats some classes or categories of people as intrinsically inferior is a form of partiality. And Christian fellowship should never discriminate in that way. We do not discriminate on the basis of wealth or on the basis of skin color. We simply can't do it. Now, I'll tell you, I'm, I'm, I'm pleased with our congregation. I'm not saying this kind of thing has never happened in our congregation, but I haven't seen this kind of partiality in our congregation, and I hope I never do. I've seen us as a congregation welcome in people of different races. I've seen us welcome the poor. I've seen us welcome single moms. I've seen us welcome the disabled. That is all wonderful. And that is how it should be. That's what the church should look like. A welcoming community. A community that welcomes all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. But even if we've done well, we have to continue to guard ourselves against this particular sin. Because partialism or favoritism is a sin that can sneak up on you. It is an easy sin to fall into. Treating people differently because of superficial characteristics like skin color or socioeconomic status, contradicts the Gospel. It contradicts what the church is all about. And yet still it happens. We've got to learn to value in one another those things that God values. I think Martin Luther King Jr. got this exactly right. I think he summarized the essence of James' ethics here in his famous line from his I Have a Dream speech when he said he dreamed of a time when people would not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. That's exactly what James is saying here, or the content of their faith, even, you could say. It's not the color of your skin. It's not the size of your wallet that matters. It's your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, I think we even violate this principle if we fawn all over celebrities, people who are famous for whatever reason, if we give their opinion more weight simply because they're famous, regardless of whether or not they've actually got wisdom. You know, there are churches that do that play this kind of game, do this kind of favoritism. We've got such and such a celebrity coming to speak and you need to come hear him. Why? Well, because he's famous. Because he's a celebrity. That kind of, that kind of thing happens all the time. It's a kind of sales pitch for the gospel. It's a kind of favoritism. I'm not saying we don't listen to people they're just because they're famous either. They really have wisdom to offer. But we shouldn't assume just because somebody is famous uh, that they should be given special treatment. There should be no double standard. Wealthy, famous, and powerful people should not get away with things others do not. You know, one of the things that's so frustrating about our politics is not just say that Democrats have a different standard for Republicans than they have for themselves. I think we've all seen that. Or you could say the same about Republicans having a double standard for a different standard for the Democrats than they have for themselves. That certainly happens. That's frustrating in itself. But it's not just that. It's also that the powerful establishment, the elites in D.C., do not seem to be held to the same standard as the rest of us. And that's one thing that I think drives a lot of the, uh, the, the anger and frustration that you see in our culture. It seems that ordinary Americans are held to a different standard 
than those who have political power. It seems the closer you get to the levers of power in D.C., the more you can get away with. And it ought not to be that way. That's a great frustration. Sometimes that kind of thing happens in the church too. People who have greater power get away with more. There should never be a double standard of that sort among the people of God. So we should constantly guard ourselves against favoritism, against partiality, uh, against bias, against prejudice, against double standards, you know, whatever you want to call it. We should constantly guard ourselves against these kinds of attitudes. They are violations of the law to love our neighbor as ourselves. They're violations of our faith in the glorious Lord Jesus. But I think James actually has something much more specific in view. James talks about a rich man and a poor man coming into one of your assemblies. The word there for assembly or meeting is actually the word synagogue. Uh, so it'd be the Jewish term for a meeting, a gathering of the church, but Christians use that term for their assemblies as well. At this point in history, the church and the synagogue aren't too clearly distinct. Christians could call their meetings churches or they could call their meetings synagogues. really didn't matter. But that word synagogue points to the community as an institution, as an organization. Certainly it includes worship gatherings, gatherings for worship like the one we're in this morning, but it includes other kinds of assemblies and other functions of the church as well. The church is more than just a place for worship. The synagogue was more than just a place for worship. It was, you know, the, the church became the center of Christian identity, the center of Christian ministry and mission in the world, the center of what God was doing in the world. And, and we live out our faith in all different kinds of ways in the church. When James here talks about a rich man and a poor man coming into one of your synagogues, one of your meetings, it could be a liturgical meeting. It could be a worship assembly like the one we're having here this morning. And certainly when Christians gather for worship, there should not be any partiality shown towards anyone. But I actually think he's got a different kind of meeting in view. I think he's actually thinking of a court of the synagogue or a court of the church. I think James here is describing the church in her judicial capacity. The church has other kinds of official meetings besides liturgical meetings. The church, for example, can function as a court. The church has a judicial function, and I think that's what James is pointing to here the church acting in her judicial capacity to settle disputes among members. That word synagogue there, if somebody comes into one of your synagogues, that's a word that stands for the whole institution, not just the worship assembly. But I think in this case, it's very likely a meeting where a church trial would take place, where the elders and pastors of the church would render a verdict based on the evidence presented. The church does have a system of courts. You need to know this. This is, we don't think about this a whole lot because, you know, we, we, a lot of churches don't function the way that they should in this way. So we don't think about this, uh, as much as we should because a lot of churches don't actually do it. But you know, we call our body of elders a session. And the session is a kind of court. Uh, we have presbytery. Presbytery is where officers from a variety of churches in a geographic area come together. Presbytery is also a court and can hear cases and render verdicts and so forth that are appropriate to its jurisdiction. I think that's the kind of meeting James has in view. Probably a council of the elders, a gathering of the session, to hear a case, to review the facts of the case, and to render a judgment. 
consider the evidence here, the way that I think James indicates this is what is going on. Verse 4, he says that those showing partiality are judges. Now they've become evil judges, bad judges, because they've showed partiality. But he's talking about them and their role as judges. Some kind of official role is in view. They're acting as judges, it seems, in a dispute between a rich man and a poor man. In this case, there's a plaintiff and a defendant, and then they're going to render a verdict. They're the judges. And James says, if you render a partial verdict, a, 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 a verdict that is based on favoritism, circumstances not relevant to the case itself, well, then you've acted as evil judges. But that's the point here. They're acting as judges in a dispute between the rich man and the poor man. Verse 6, it is foolish to show partiality towards the rich. Why? Because James says, they oppress you and drag you into court. That's the setting here of court. The rich are using their power and their influence to abuse the poor through the judicial system, it seems, of, of the church. They're using their power and influence, maybe not to explicitly bribe judges, but still in some way to tip the scales of judge uh, of justice in their favor. You know, Lady Justice is supposed to be blindfolded when she holds the scales of justice. But things like status, things like wealth, can enter into it if the judges are evil, and then there's not going to be an equitable or fair verdict rendered. And it seems that's what James is really dealing with here. You know, if justice is blind to who's rich and who's poor or who's black and who's white or whatever other factor you want to bring in, if justice is blind to all of that, then an equitable verdict can be rendered. But in this particular case, that's not happening. The poor are not being judged equitably. The rich are using their power and their resources to influence the process in their favor. Here's another consideration, not directly in James, but it, it ties in with what James is talking about. If you go back to the Old Testament, there are a lot of verses, there are a lot of places in the Old Testament that deal with this sin of partiality, that forbid partiality. And every single one of them has to do with a court setting, a legal setting. So just some examples of this. Exodus 23, verse 3. You shall not show partiality to a poor man in his dispute. And then a few verses later, verse 6. You shall not... Uh, pass judgment uh, on the poor in his dispute. Uh, so with, 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 the, with the law saying there in Exodus 23, no one, neither the rich nor the poor, should get special treatment in a court. When the Torah, the Old Testament law, deals with partiality, it deals with it in the context of a law court. Don't show the poor favor because they're poor. Don't show the rich favor because they're rich. Leviticus 19, same thing. We read it this morning. You shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor honor the mighty. It's acknowledged that partiality could go either way. The poor man could tug on your heartstrings and you render a verdict in his favor, showing partialism that way. Or the rich, the mighty, could use their power to sway you and influence you in that direction. A judge should not do that. No, Leviticus says, in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. Partiality is the opposite of righteousness, the opposite of justice. Deuteronomy 1.17, you shall show no partiality in judgment. You shall hear the small as well as the great. This is a wonderful rule that made its way into Western jurisprudence and has been such a protection for us. Uh, everybody gets due process, great and small, rich and poor. 
They all get to have their say. They're all to be heard in a court of law. That's what the rule of law, that's what justice is really all about. Whether you're rich or poor, you get to state your case in court before an impartial judge. Deuteronomy chapter 10 points to God Himself as the model for this kind of judgment. The Lord your God is mighty and awesome and shows no partiality and takes no bribe. God is a judge who cannot be bribed and He does not show partiality. That's the model for all human justice. The model for all human judges. And then you find this in other places in the New Testament. It's actually really interesting how many places favoritism and partiality are addressed in the New Testament. One of them is 1 Timothy 5.21. Paul's writing to Timothy, who is a pastor, and he says, do not show partiality. Now, he could just be talking about within the life of the church, don't play favorites. But it seems in the wider context, he's really talking about how Timothy acts in his official office as a mediator, as an arbiter, as a judge. When Paul tells Pastor Timothy to not show partiality, he's probably saying, look, you're an officer in the church, and so you've got to be impartial in the judgments you render. An impartial mediator. An impartial judge when you hear cases. We further see the church acting as a court uh, in other ways. And I'll just throw some of these out just for you to consider. These don't necessarily have to do with partiality so much, but just the church as a court. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we see the church acting as a court in disciplining a man who has fallen into heinous sin, some kind of terrible sexual immorality. And Paul says, I can't believe you've let this go on. You should have excommunicated this man already. The facts of the case are not in dispute. Everybody agrees on what has happened. The man is unrepentant. And so Paul actually passes a verdict against the man in the letter. He says this man is to be handed over to Satan, but then he, he wants them to follow up and render a verdict of their own the next time they gather to gather as the church. Paul ends that chapter by saying the church has to judge its own. He expects the church to act as a court and to deal with these kinds of situations, to make judgments about whether or not a man in this particular case can still be a Christian and a church member, whether or not he can be considered a covenant member based on how he's living. And Paul says, no. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, you continue on. Paul continues to unpack what it means for the church to function as a court. He says that you should not take one another to court. You should not take your cases in front of a secular or pagan judge because the church has its own judges and courts. You should not have two Christians who are in a dispute with one another going before a pagan judge or a secular judge. He says, you as the saints will judge angels. And if you're going to judge angels, surely you can find a competent judge within your community, within your congregation, who can judge fairly between you. The church has got to function as a court, judging her own, settling her own disputes in-house. The church is a court with her own judges. Paul says, uh, later in that chapter, he says, is there not a wise man who can judge between the brethren? He's describing the judicial function of the church. And you know what's interesting about this? We have um, some accounts of this kind of thing happening. In ancient Rome, of course, Rome had been known for its legal system. Now we see when... Rome condemns Jesus to be crucified, that the Roman legal system was far from perfect. But as the system began to be more and more corrupted, as it became a place where justice really couldn't be found anymore because the Roman courts were showing such partiality, 
Eventually, even pagans began to bring their cases to the church to be heard by Christian bishops and elders because it was the only place they could expect to find a fair and just trial. And I dare say we may head back to that same kind of situation again at some point if the church can get her act together. But there's no question that our courts, our legal system, has been corrupted. We read Matthew 18 this morning as well. Matthew 18 describes the church as a kind of court. And it outlines a church discipline process, a judicial process. It's how to deal with unrepentant sin in the congregation. And there's this legal process that Jesus spells out where there's an investigation and a trial and witnesses brought in and finally a verdict is pronounced. And of course, the hope is always that the sinning brother will repent you know, if he's committing some sin that puts his soul in jeopardy and, and, and you confront him about that. The hope is always that he will repent at some point along the way, at some stage in this process. But if he doesn't, Jesus tells the church what to do, the kind of verdict that has to be rendered. Jesus is clearly describing the church functioning as a court. And those promises that we like to talk about wherever two or three gather together, Jesus says, there I am among them, or whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Those promises have specific reference to the church in her judicial capacity. The church discipline process and the church, the church functioning as a court. That's where those promises are given in that context. Jesus is with us when two or three Christian judges have gathered together to render their verdict. There are other applications to that, but that's the context. So traditionally, pastors and elders have seen as part of their job description, yes, certainly being shepherds of the people, the congregation is their flock, they're to oversee and care for and, and, and feed and nurture, but pastors and elders are also judges who settle disputes among the people, who hear cases and resolve them, who act as mediators and arbiters when there's a dispute within the community. And I think James' main point here, then, is directed towards church leadership or those who might function as judges. And it's really intended to echo what is taught in the Old Testament. When a pastor or when elders hear a case, they should not show favoritism. They cannot make up their mind who is right. You know, this is what we're facing in our culture. People know who is guilty and who is innocent before the facts of the case are even heard based on skin color or based on sex. That, that's the kind of partiality being seen in our politics and our legal system today. James is saying when pastors and elders hear a case, they cannot show that kind of favoritism. They should rule according to the facts of the case. The session has to be even-handed in judicial matters. You don't rule in favor of the rich member because he tithes more, because you want access to his power. You don't rule in, in favor of the poor person because you just feel sorry for them. No, the session has to make rulings on the basis of justice. On the basis of the facts of the case and the law of God. The session can't make rulings on the basis of skin pigmentation or socioeconomic class or physical attractiveness or any other factor that's irrelevant to the facts of the case. Those things should not ever factor into judgment. The church should be a community of justice. And partiality is the opposite 
of justice. Now I'm going to come back next week and address this a little bit more, especially how it relates to what's happening in our culture, especially the political and legal system in our culture, how these principles are very much at odds with what's called identity politics. It goes by different names. What's happening in our culture? What kind of partiality is entering in? And what we can do about that as the church. But let's wrap this up. James tells us favoritism is a sin. It's a failure to love. It's a failure to practice the faith of the Lord Jesus. James gives us two reasons why favoritism is a sin. First, favoritism, again, violates the law. It's a violation of the law just as much as committing murder or adultery. It's a violation of the law to love your neighbor as yourself. Favoritism, partiality, is a violation not just of the law of Moses, certainly it is that, but it's also a violation of the law of Jesus. What James here calls the royal law or the law of the kingdom, the sovereign law. The royal law tells us how to live like Jesus. The royal law tells us how to live like kings. And kings cannot show partiality. Kings must judge with justice. They show mercy to the needy instead of oppressing them. They rule in justice. This is how they serve. This is how they exert their leadership in the community. This is what it means to be a king, to adhere to the royal law. And of course, Jesus Himself embodied this law. We see this in the Gospels again and again. How Jesus practiced mercy and justice. The Pharisees point this out in Matthew 22 when they come to question Him about paying taxes to Caesar, thinking maybe they can get Jesus to bend the knee to the powers that be and get Him into trouble. But they preface their question by saying, Teacher, we know you do not care about anyone's opinion. And you're not swayed by appearances. Well, there it is. The Pharisees were very much, very much cared about people's opinion. And they were very much swayed by appearances. But not Jesus. Because He was a just judge. He wasn't swayed by those things because He embodied justice. Jesus was no respecter of persons. He upheld the law. He is an impartial judge. He is a merciful judge. That's the law. James remind us, reminds us partiality is a violation of the law. But there's another argument James gives here. Partiality violates the law, the law of Moses and especially the law of Jesus. But favoritism is not only a violation of the law, it's also a violation of the Gospel. It's a contradiction of the Gospel. Look at what James says about the poor. Verse 5, Has not God chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which He has promised to those who love Him. James says, look, you want to show how impartial God is? Look at who God has chosen. So often God has chosen the poor and the weak to be part of His people. And He's made them rich in faith while the rich are poor in faith or don't have faith at all. James really here is saying the same thing that Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. Paul says to the Corinthian church, Think about what you were when you were called. When God called you to this glorious standing you have in Christ Jesus, think about where you were. He says, not many of you were wise according to the flesh. Not many of you were mighty. Not many of you were noble. But God has chosen the foolish to shame the worldly wise. He's chosen the weak to shame the worldly strong. It's the same kind of principle. It's just how the Gospel works. Now the point, and don't misunderstand this, because this would lead you into partiality. The point is not that all the poor are saved and none of the rich are. Or something like that. No, it's that the poor are disproportionately represented in God's kingdom. 
And it's not hard to see why. It's not because they're not as depraved as the rich, but it's because riches can actually become a stumbling block to entering the kingdom. And for the poor, there's no stumbling block there in the same kind of way. People who have no kingdom of their own, so to speak, are often more open to seeking God's kingdom. People who have no earthly inheritance are more open to focusing on an eternal inheritance. Those without material riches are often willing to seek heavenly riches instead. Those who are poor in material goods can often be quicker to see that they are poor in spirit. And that's really the gateway to the kingdom. Seeing your own spiritual poverty before God. And so James says, God has chosen the poor to be rich in faith. Not all the poor, it's just the poor who love them. He adds that qualification. But the poor don't have the stumbling block that the rich sometimes have. And what James says here would seem to be true even in our own day. If you go to places where power and wealth are most concentrated, you just don't find that many things. It's just hard to be a Christian in those places. You don't find a lot of believers in Hollywood or D.C. or Wall Street, but you find a lot of Christians in those places in the world that are poor. Now again, God does not side with the poor unconditionally, but God does side with the humble, and the rich often aren't. And the poor often find it easier to humble themselves because they don't have as many earthly or worldly hang-ups. This is the way of the Gospel. God is willing to bless the very people others shun. Why? Because it magnifies His grace. It shows God is impartial. It shows that our salvation is entirely a work of God's mercy. See, the point here really is not statistical trends or the demographics of the church or something like that. The point James is driving at is really the character of God and the character of the Gospel. The Gospel is a deeply humbling message because it says you cannot save yourself. The Gospel crucifies our pride. The Gospel annihilates any sense of self-sufficiency. The rich can be saved, but only if they admit their spiritual poverty. And sometimes that's hard for them to do. And this is why favoritism of the rich opposes the Gospel. It looks at things according to the wrong scale of values. But there's one other thing here. You know, James, throughout the letter, I've shown you this, he's kind of left Gospel clues. Kind of like a, a, a trail of breadcrumbs that if you'll follow them, will take you straight back to the Gospel. The Gospel's always buried in James' letter. It's not right there on the surface. You have to dig to see it. And here's another one of those little gospel clues or gospel hints. It's very curious uh, that James, when he speaks of the poor in general, he speaks in the plural in verse 5. The poor as a category containing many people. It's, it's in the plural. But in verse 6, he shifts to the singular and says, you have dishonored the poor man if you show this kind of favoritism in favor of the rich and against the poor. You've dishonored the poor man. Who is this poor man? It's got to be Jesus. 2 Corinthians 8 tells us, He who was rich became poor for our sakes. Jesus came among us as one who was poor. The prophet Isaiah tells us He would have nothing that would attract us to Him in any kind of worldly way. By worldly standards, He was not attractive. Jesus is the ultimate poor man. And if you despise the poor man who comes into your church, then you are despising Jesus. How you treat that poor man in your church is how you treat Jesus Himself. Because Jesus came among us as one who is poor. And so the poor man is a test case. What you do with Him is what you would have done with Jesus had you lived during His earthly ministry. 
In a sense, Jesus still shows up among us as the poor. How we treat our poor brothers and sisters is how we treat Jesus. This is something Scripture shows us again and again. Proverbs 17, he who mocks the poor mocks his maker. Proverbs 19, lending to the poor is lending to the Lord. Your care for the poor is seen as care for the Lord. Mocking the poor is seen as mocking the Lord Himself. You go back to what James says about widows and orphans at the end of chapter 1. True religion is not repulsed by the needy, but rather is drawn to the needy to help them. Why? We show mercy because our God shows mercy. God reproduces His mercy in His people. Mercy begets mercy. And that's why this passage closes with a proverb. Jesus said, James says we should speak and act as those who will be judged by the law of freedom. And then he gives us a, a couple proverbs here. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. That's one proverb. And mercy triumphs over judgment. That's another proverb. And here's James' point. You will appear before God's court someday. Now we've moved from the court of the church to the divine court at the last day. God will judge each one of us in Christ, His Son. And He will judge us according to the standard of His law. We've shifted from the church's court to God's court. How will you fare in that judgment? If you want to be judged with mercy, you must show mercy to others right now. Show mercy, not partiality. Those are two different things. And I'll talk some about how they're different next week. Show mercy. And you know you will be shown mercy because if you show mercy, it proves you have been shown mercy. Jesus said, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Let's pray together. Father, help us through Your Son and by the work of Your Holy Spirit to not only talk the faith, but to walk it out. Put our money where our mouth is, so to speak. To be kind, merciful, and generous to be just. Help us to fulfill the royal law, the eschatological law of Jesus, the law of His kingdom, the law of love. May we love each other as You, Lord, have loved us. May we show mercy to others as You have shown us mercy. This we pray in the name of the Lord Jesus.